Section 5 of How the Codex Was Found by Margaret Dunlop Gibson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 5. 5. On Monday, February 8th, we worked for seven hours in the library, beginning at 9 a.m. The manuscripts are very much scattered, some Greek ones being in the show library, and the Arabic partly there and partly in a little room halfway up a dark stair. The Syriac ones, and those supposed to be the most ancient, are partly in this little room, and partly in a dark closet, approached through a room almost as dark. There they repose in two closed boxes, and cannot be seen without a lighted candle. They have at different times been stored in the vaults beneath the convent for safety, when attacks were threatened from the Bedouin. They were there exposed to damp, and then allowed to dry without any care. It is a wonder that the strong parchment and clearly written letters have in so many cases withstood so many adverse influences. Galactaeon gave us every facility for photographing. He spent hours holding books open for us, or deciphering pages of the Septuagint. The fact that Englishmen should be so anxious for a correct version of the sacred writings as to have sheets of paper printed on purpose for scholars to collate them with all the extant manuscripts filled the monks with a profound respect for our nation. The only drawback to our comfort was the bitterly cold wind, the temperature in our tents at night being below zero, and as there was no glass in the library windows, we had some difficulty in keeping ourselves warm. This we could only do by a smart walk out of the narrow wadi, where the shadows lay so long, into the bright sunshine of the plain, Er-Raha. But who may describe the beauty of the sunsets, when tall cypresses towered from the glorious masses of white almond trees against a background of bare granite cliffs, all touched with the gold of heaven, or the moonlight in that silent wadi, so clear and strong, which made the olive boughs look like fairy lacework, and the ground beneath them, strewn as it was with fallen almond blossoms, gleaming as if snow lay on it, whilst a few upward steps out of the garden revealed a panorama of lofty cliffs where intense silence brooded, and our thoughts went forcibly back to the time when they shook and rocked at the touch of the divine glory. It was on Saturday that we climbed the mountain. Whilst preparing to start at seven in the morning, we observed from our tent door that the monks were wending their way from the cemetery chapel situated near us, where they had been holding a service towards the convent. We said good morning to our particular friends amongst them, and at last, seeing the hegumenos, I deemed it courteous to go out and shake hands. He sent me a shower of holy water from the silver vessel he was carrying, and I said thank you. He then held up a small silver cross, telling me in Greek to adore it. I stepped back involuntarily, for I was taken by surprise. Adore it, exclaimed the hegumenos, somewhat peremptorily. A monk who stood behind him remarked, Her form of worship is different from ours. Adore it, said the hegumenos again. I saw no way out of the difficulty but that of suppressing my predilections. So I kissed the cross and said, I adore the Saviour who died upon a cross. Had I done otherwise, I should have thrown the poor hegumenos into a state of great perplexity. He would have thought me an atheist, for his intellect was not capable of understanding my notions. But it was a lesson to me never again to approach a Greek ecclesiastic when walking in procession. 
A lay brother, clad in a blue frock, accompanied us as a guide. We climbed a very stony path till we reached a spring of delicious water called the Fountain of the Shoemaker, because St. Stephen, a cobbler of Alexandria, once dwelt there. Arab tradition makes it the spot where Moses watered the flocks of Jethro, his father-in-law. It is an interesting query where these flocks were pastured. A little rain fell, and dark clouds gathered about the mountain tops, but they passed off as we reached the little chapel of the Bursar. Then we mounted a flight of rock-strewn steps by the old way of pilgrims, and passing under an ancient arch, turned back to gaze on a magnificent prospect of bare mountains and desert valleys extending to the horizon. Then we went under another archway and came in sight of a few cypresses near the chapel of Elijah at the foot of the peak named Jebel Musa, the proper name for the mountain range being Horeb in its lower and Sinai in its upper part. Within the chapel is a cave, said to be that in which the prophet was fed by ravens. We gazed on the mountain top, and resolved to defer climbing it till another day, and to direct our efforts towards the higher summit of the Ras Safsafe, which is supposed to be the mountain of the law. We climbed amongst magnificent cliffs, pausing now and then to get a draught of delicious water, or to pick up a fine bit of granite graphites, note, which was not the right thing after all, end of note, till we reached the foot of the highest precipice. Then began a very difficult ascent, in which hands and knees had to be constantly used, and the ready help of the monk and Hannah accepted. The monk pulled sprigs of hyssop for us, and the Bedouin found pretty dendrolites for the Woodwardian Museum. Our eyes were much irritated by the dust thrown off by an ill-smelling plant called Svaka, which it is often necessary to grasp in order to get over some boulder. At length we reached the foot of the great, inaccessible rock which crowns the summit, a rock which no human foot has ever rested on, and, peering over a wind-swept ledge, had a magnificent view of the extensive plain of Erraha beneath us. The monk, who was named Euphemius, had brought only bread and cheese for his lunch. The agility which he had displayed in climbing tempted us to think that he had the advantage of us flesh-eaters, but a glance at his sunken cheeks banished the thought. He told us that he had been fifteen years in a tailor's shop in Athens, and had come to Sinai after the death of his wife, having no children. He had often attended Dr. Kalapathaki's services, and received much instruction from them. This enabled him to understand exactly what our form of worship is. Hana, who is a Roman Catholic, struck a false note by making a disparaging remark about Moses, having probably picked it up from some German travelers. This was no proof of his sense, for we should certainly not have employed him to bring us there had we not believed in the divine mission of Moses. As I knew there were three roads by which we might descend, I asked Hannah three times which of these we were on, saying we should prefer to return either by the path we had come up, or by a steeper and shorter one which led directly to the convent. Hannah, thereupon, directed Euphemios to lead us down the very longest way possible, by a path that brought us into a wadi on the side of Jebel Musa, farthest from the convent so that we had still five miles to walk over rough stones, in fact, to make a half-circuit of Horeb at its base. I was very angry, and scolded Hannah for not consulting me. 
We were not consoled by being conducted through two little olive gardens belonging to the convent in other wadis, nor even by being shown the genuine rock, a big boulder, which Moses struck in anger. I was so tired that I could hardly walk, and long after the moon had risen I was obliged to sit down on stones to rest. We reached our tents at eight o'clock, an Arab coming out with a lamp to meet us. Our excursion had occupied eleven hours, ten of which we had spent in quick walking and climbing over the roughest of rocks and stones, so that it may be imagined we lost no time in retiring to rest. Next morning being Sunday, we were told that a lady and gentleman were about to arrive from Tor. Tents were certainly pitched outside of the convent, just where the Wadi Aldir opens into the plain, Er-Raha. So in the cool of the evening we went down to pay our first call. We found two young North Germans, who said they were a party of four, and had come for the sake of sport, having sailed in a boat which brought them from Suez to Tor in the place of four days. Their dragoman was a Polish Jew who had never been in the desert before. They had never imagined that there would be so much difficulty in getting water. We were, perhaps, too communicative in telling them about our work in the library and the Syriac palimpsest of 358 pages which we were photographing. We found next morning that Galactean expected a visit from the whole party, and asked our leave to bring them into the room where we were working. If they come, he said, please go on with your work and do not begin any conversation. To this we assented, seeing that silence is the rule in European reading rooms. All the monks were greatly excited, because they had been told that one of the German party was a count, a near relative of the ex-king of Greece. At length Galactaeon brought the four young men into the room where we were working. They were accompanied by their three servants, and made themselves intelligible by means of one of the party speaking ancient Greek, with the modern pronunciation, as it is now taught in Germany, and the dragoman speaking Russian to Galactaeon. When they had left, I was told that the youth from Leipzig wished to work in the library next day, and had asked particularly for the Syriac book I was transcribing and photographing. I said he might have it for a couple of hours. The Germans sent in the afternoon to ask the monks for a guide to ascend Jebel Katarina. Galactean shook with laughter at this proposal to start on an excursion which would require at least twelve hours of daylight, and at length flatly refused to help with it. Next day, after vainly trying to settle a dispute between the Germans and their Bedouin escort, Galactean conducted us to see what he believes to be the very rock struck by Moses. It is not a boulder, but a fissure in the rock of the mountainside, from which a little rill of clear cold water still flows, giving sustenance to a few olives and almonds. The place looks as if it had been rent by a blow. As we walked back, some Bedouin came and appealed to Galactean to bring the Germans to reason. He has become quite a judge amongst them, having been for twenty years bursar of the convent before he became librarian. They come to him even about their quarrels with their wives. Later in the evening, both the Bedouin and the Germans dragoman appealed to Hana. The truth was that the travellers had come into the desert quite without money, and the Bedouin, having been often swindled by dragomans, invariably insisted on being paid for their camels beforehand. Hana declined to lend anything, saying that he could not fulfill his obligations to us if he did, for he required all the money he had to take us home. 
The Germans left next morning, Galactean having enabled them to do so by lending them twelve pounds. They had never returned our call, nor even shown us the slight civility usual in the desert, of offering to carry our letters to Suez. We had been longing for news of the outer world, and especially for information as to the health of our beloved queen, but of this they did not give us the least chance. Never again can we accept the fiction that our own countrymen are less sociable than Teutons. The monks were puzzled as to why the Count had never come with his friends into the convent. When we returned to Suez, we ascertained that the existence of that young man was a deliberate fabrication. End of section 5 Recording by Hannah Mary